So today I am joined by Professor John Eastman. Professor, uh, thank you for being here with me today. Thank you very much for uh, having me and engaging in this conversation. Absolutely. Now, you are someone who has managed to get himself into quite a bit of controversy over the past six months or so. And, you know, that stems back, the earliest I saw was some comments made about Kamala Harris potentially not being suit for vice president, or more recently, obviously, um, you speaking at the January 6th, uh, you know, uh, presentation there uh, at the Capitol or nearby, at least. And that's all fine and games, but I really want to first pin down who you are, because ever since you've been in the spotlight, I only get to see you from the lens of the media or from Twitter. And maybe they have things right. Maybe they have things wrong. I'm sure you have your opinions on that. But from your perspective, aside from any controversy, who are you, Professor Eastman? Well, I'm a, uh, I, I, think I'm, I think it's fair to say I'm one of the leading scholars in the country about the original meaning of the Constitution, particularly in its structural aspects, not the rights provisions and not the Civil War amendments, although I do a lot of work in those various things. But, but what the original design of James Madison and Alexander Hamilton had in mind, the, the beauty of the structure of the Constitution, the separation of powers, the checks and balances, the, the, uh, the, the, the principles of federalism and the division of our sovereign authority uh, between the two levels of government, the state governments and the federal government, and, and how all of that ties back to the political theory uh, conveyed in the Declaration of Independence. Um, and my, my whole life has been devoted to rearticulating and recovering those principles and that original understanding of the Constitution, because I think I think uh, it's quite frankly the greatest Constitution ever penned by by mankind and um, uh, by by a by a by a group of people who were just extraordinary in their genius and understanding uh, both human nature. They had this combination of practical experience of governing themselves and as colonists but also enough leisure time to have studied the great political theorists of the past and see what worked and what didn't. And when they were given the opportunity to bring those two things together, they produced something phenomenal and unique in human history, I think. Well, I'm certainly not as qualified to talk on the subject as you are, but I agree. It is a brilliant constitution, the best I know of. But at the same time, many people will argue today, well, it was amazing in its writing at one point in history, but should it not be equally amazing in its new interpretations at a new point in history? What is the validity well, in that argument? Well, you go, you, I mean, certainly that's the, the modern living constitution view. Um, but but if, you, if you go back and recognize the, the singular accomplishment of the founding generation, which was to recognize that, that sovereigns is not the government, but it's the people. And the legitimacy of government is based on the extent to which the people govern themselves, the consent of the governed, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence. We do that by adopting constitutions at heightened periods of focus rather than temporary passions um, where you know, mob rule might, might infringe on the rights of minorities. So the combination of majority rule but the protection of minority rights gives us this elevated and, and supercharged ratification process to get the governing and higher law of the land in the constitution. And we have the right to change that, um, but we ought to not change it willy-nilly. Uh, and we certainly ought not to allow it to be changed by unelected judges, which is what the modern living constitution, let's just reinterpret that clause to bring it up to modern times. 
Well, if the people were ready to reinterpret it, they could do it themselves, right? And so, so the modern view of it is essentially a repudiation of the foundational principle of consent of the governed. So if it is done properly, in your view, by properly elected judges and so forth, but society has a shift in morality, if you want to call it, because it seems that democratic rule in many ways has a subjective basis for morality, although you could argue whether that's a good thing or not. Do you then think there's any more legitimacy to the argument that, well, morality itself has changed, even if the structural uh, foundation is, is great, but don't we need to have a process that is relatively quick or at least quick enough to match the times, or is it really a dangerous precedent to set? Well, I think it's a dangerous precedent to set. Look, the founders rightly understood, as Aristotle did, that pure democracy or raw democracy is not a good form of government. It's a bad form of government. It means that the majority can impose its will on members of the minority, whether we define that in racial terms or just individual rights terms. Um, and, and so what they, what they recognize is we want to have a governing republic where the majority controls, but the majority's passions are constrained so that they can't interfere or infringe on the rights of the minority or of, of, of individual rights. Um, and that's why you had a, a separate Senate from the House of Representatives with different modes of election. Um, the passions of the people would play out most immediately with the, with the elections to the House of Representatives every two years but we would put some breaks on those passions to let the deliberation process take hold so that the, the will of the majority is not raw will, but an enlightened or refined will of the majority that recognizes the competing claims of individual rights. And so, you know, and, and so the, the, the checks or the slowness or the, the gum in the works that many modernly see as a flaw in the constitution is, is actually one of its singular virtues. If you can consolidate and through deliberation reach a majority with those impediments in the in the in the way, that means the majority is is more likely going to be acting for the common good rather than its own self-interested good. Now that's an interesting point you brought up about the slowness being an asset in some way that it really is for the common good, but from what I hear just through day-to-day -day conversation is that it's slower than it was at one time. In your eyes, is it unnecessarily slow? Is political polarization leading to something that makes it uh, almost too slow to where you can't quite get enough change done in a couple terms? Or is it really acting how it should have and it was actually just quicker in the past for other reasons? Well, well a part of the problem is we've so expanded the powers of the federal government by illegitimate interpretation. So for example, the two key powers, the power to spend, it's not an un unfettered power to spend. It's a power to spend in the common defense and in the general or national welfare, not for the local welfare. For the first three quarters uh, of the century of our first you know, nation's history, um, they understood that funding for local projects was unconstitutional. Now, you know, it seems like the only thing anybody can agree on <laughs> is to divvy up trillions of dollars and send it out for local projects. Why should the, the people in Boulder be paying for a wide roadening project in Rhode Island or vice versa, right? And, and, and that means they're now focused on things they ought not to be focused on. And then, and then the things that they ought to be focused on and reaching some compromise and agreement on get pushed to the back of the burner and, and never get decided questions of 
what should our security at the borders be? What should our immigration policy be? These are the things that ought to be decided at the national level. And yet they get very short shrift because we're now divvying up a pie that ought not to exist at the national government at all. And so I think that contributes to it. If we would get back to the federal government being in its constitutional lane, then they would have more time to devote to the things that matter on the national scale. And we would find that I think the founders vision of this was actually quite good. Do you not think to pin this down that there is some kind of um, damage coming from political polarization, whether it led through social media and its algorithms or just through the the way we speak or don't speak freely today? Do you not think that's part of it? I, I do think that's part of it. But the question is, what's the remedy? Um, you know, part of it is um, it's easy to be um, uh, hostile uh, defamatory even toward people that you don't have to look in the eye or shake their hand. That's what Twitter and Facebook and these other social media platforms allow us to do. And, and even to do it behind complete anonymity, we can create a, a false, false name on those platforms. Um, it's much more difficult to do that if you're standing across the table from somebody and looking him or her in the eye and having to shake their hand afterwards. Um, and so that's part of it. But the question is, what's the remedy? And one of the remedies since the New Deal era of the 1930s is let's, let's get all of those contentious issues out of Congress and send them over to the experts over in the administrative agencies. Now, what does that do to the notion of consent to the governed? If we can't reach some decision, for example, on how, what the trade-offs on protecting the environment versus jobs should be, then why would we, uh, we want to let some unelected administrator, unaccountable to no one, make those judgments for us. Because these things are not all black and white. There are trade-offs in most of these policy judgments. And the Constitution assigns the basic function of making those policies to a branch of government that then has to be accountable to the people. When we lose that, yeah, it may, makes things smoother. I might get all sorts of regulations through much more easily, but we're no longer governing ourselves and making those key policy judgments in a way that is accountable to the sovereign authority of the people or the consent of the governed. So these administrators, would that be synonymous with the bureaucracy? Yes, yes, Okay. In, indeed, yep. Different different words, depending on whether you want the, the, the negative or the positive spin. Uh, Felix Frankfurter was famous to, uh, that he, he brought in his best and brightest students to run the mac machinery of government and we would all be better off. But we find out that um, even the experts have agendas, and they're not always aligned with the good, common good of the people or the uh, or the will of the people. And you know, fundamentally, it's a fight about whether we're going to continue to govern ourselves or not. And part of that fight, too, I'm I'm a firm believer in this, is our ability to speak freely, to have dialogue with those we disagree with. You and I may not agree on everything, but this conversation is really important, and I, I'm a firm believer in that. So I, I'm curious what this experience has been like for you as someone who, as far as I can tell, also agrees with that statement. You are a firm believer in, in free speech and presenting your ideals. Um, do you think that you have approached any lines that were borderline too far in the sense of this could have been damaging to inciting riot or something like that? Do, do you have any quarrel with that or any regrets in anything that you've said or wish you said? No, I, I, I don't. And, and those like the chancellor of the university that accused me of, of inciting the riot or helping to incite the riot, 
apparently didn't listen to my speech because I clearly didn't, uh, but also don't know anything about the Supreme Court's view of the First Amendment on this. It was not remotely qualify as an incitement. Incitement is, I think, quite rightly not protected by the First Amendment. But my my three minutes of remarks uh, before the half million people at the mall do not remotely rise to that level. And in fact, I, you know, quite frankly, I, I think the effort to shut down any discussion about whether there was fraud and illegality in the election um, is, is a serious matter of public concern that ought to have been uh, given a full airing. And, and, and quite frankly, my greatest disappointment is that the University of Colorado at Boulder and particularly the Benson Center where my visitorship is, uh, is under its auspices, I think missed a huge opportunity to uh, engage me, one of the national leaders on, on this issue uh, here living in Boulder for the year to engage me in a civil and scholarly debate that would have been the envy of the entire world, not just the entire country. Um, uh, I've got a lot of evidence. There's been a lot of false flag evidence put out there. I've got a lot of hard evidence. Um, and there are people that might even think some of my hard evidence is false flag. But how do we get to the point of knowing which it is if we refuse to engage people on the subject? And so the chancellor's first shot across the bow was Eastman made statements without any evidence um, uh, uh, of election fraud. Now he didn't contact me before he sent that to ask me whether I had evidence. Um, and and uh, as a serious scholar, I would not make such statements without evidence. I immediately sent a note to the head of the Benson Center saying this is looking like it's gonna blow up. I want you to know I've got sworn testimony or expert evidence for every statement I made. And instead of using that as an opportunity to provide a forum to debate the evidence, he sent out his own letter the next day saying Eastman did this without producing any evidence. Um, and that was just a blatant lie. But I think more importantly, a missed opportunity for the University of Colorado to take a step, a, a step up and do the kind of things that universities are supposed to do and used to do which is to have an intellectual and honest and civil discussion about such contentious issues to try and get to the truth. One of the reasons we have a First Amendment that the Supreme Court has described as unfettered is because you know, uh, allowing both sides to compete in the, in, the, in the public forum of public opinion is how we get to the truth. And when you shut that down, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to get to the truth. And I, I think it was a tremendously missed opportunity here, both for the university and the Benson Center. Well, on CU specifically, then, if you could clarify even further what parameters were taken from you, what you're still allowed to do, because during the email I did see, um, it started off very briefly saying how you're not going to be removed as a visiting scholar. You're going to go through the end of your your term. It may have been May. Uh, you'll have to clarify the specifics. Yep. But uh, so I saw that. And at first I was like, okay, that's a stance. And then as you just recently said just now, uh, but then it went on to condemn your actions or your statements. So behind the scenes, if you want to call it that, what has this led to for you at CU? What is your uh, capacity as an instructor of some kind? So, so uh, the note I got from the director of the Benson Center said, uh, this is a couple of days before classes started, your, your students are gonna be converted to independent study. 
so the university was going to cancel my formal class sessions, but the students would be allowed to do it as independent study. That never happened. They just cut off all access. So not only were my classes canceled unceremoniously and without notice to me, but the students were deprived of the class they had registered for. And my prior students were deprived of, of my ability to give them feedback, which I told them I would do uh, on their term paper and on their final exams once the new semester started. So that was, that was disadvantageous to the students and unfair to them, in my view. Um, uh, but then the, the provost of the university announced that I would no longer be able to do other duties that I had been contractually assigned to do. Uh, I organized a, a, a very prominent lecture series, but and people uh, who, you know, coming to, to participate in this lecture series as a result of my personal friendship and invitation, and I'm not allowed now to introduce them at the lecture series. Uh, and then of course, uh, uh, although uh, while I technically retain my title as the D distinguished visiting professor of conservative thought and policy, not allowed to speak using that title. So I am speaking to you today in my personal capacity, which is just utter nonsense. Um, they did say that uh, I could speak on my own behalf as if I needed their permission to do that. Um, and they and they said that uh, in order to warrant my salary, which I think if they had, had cut that off, they know they would have been sued immediately. Um, for uh, an unlawful violation of my First Amendment rights and my due process rights um, for uh, you know, an, an adverse employment action. Um, they, this is a public university. They are constrained by the constitution on how they can treat people, including members of their faculty. And by the way, it didn't start with the January 6th thing. It started when the president of the United States asked me to represent him before the Supreme Court. I mean, that's, that's sent off a feeding. It actually started before that back in August with the Kamala Harris thing. We'll get to that in a minute because that's an interesting story um, as well. But, but what the university put out publicly was just a damn lie. Uh, they said that they canceled my classes because of low enrollment. I mean, that was false uh, because there are a hundred or more classes currently being offered on campus that had lower enrollments than mine. Um, and, and, and so th that meant that that was a pretext and, and, a, and, a, and a lie. Um, they canceled my classes because they didn't want me on campus teaching um, because of a cancel culture and a cancel mob uh, that, that, that deigns to say some people's speech is permissible and some people's speech uh, cannot be tolerated. Uh, and it's not, it's not the traditional kinds of things like hate speech or incitement to sedition or obscenity those things we exclude from First Amendment protections. It was speech on a core issue of, of whether the election was validly conducted uh, and, and therefore whether the people are able to control their government through the election. It doesn't get much more important than that and more central or core to the First Amendment. And yet, and yet the mob on campus decided to, uh, that it was easier to shut it down and, and do it as fully as they, as they possibly could. Uh, that's, this is not conducive to a search for truth, and it's certainly not conducive uh, to an academic environment that ought to engage in these kind of things with civil discourse. So then how is this similar or completely dissimilar to your experience with Chapman? How, how has that looked? Well, you know, uh, the, uh, the uh, president of the university, of Chapman University, was um, uh, more... Um, because I mean, my my tenure there was long term, so he couldn't just ride this out. You know, he'll be gone by May, and then we we'll, we can breathe again. Um, 
but he was also not going to not going to terminate me because uh, he understood the importance of the free speech issues. Um, but the general counsel of the university snuck into one of the statements. I have no ability to do that per the faculty manual unless he's convicted of a felony or or um, or disbarred. Now that was just an open invitation for people to file frivolous bar complaints against me in in the state bar of California, which has become fairly hyper partisan. And um, that that created a certain risk for my my future employment there uh, that I wasn't willing to take. And so we reached we reached an appropriate agreement, um, the terms of which are confidential and I can't talk about further. Um, but part of that agreement was I would not bring suit against the several members of the faculty and trustees who had published a, a clear per se defamation uh, statements, not only false, but knowingly false and maliciously false. So I agreed not to pursue defamation cases for anything that had been said up to that point. Uh, that part of the announcement uh, sent a pretty good shot across the bow and there's been not a single defamatory statement made by the faculty or the trustees since that point because they know. Uh, by the way, I just, I just to put this in context and let's use this as the bridge for the Kamala Harris thing. Um, uh, my scholarly work on the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment now reaches back 20 years. Uh, I have, I have, I, I, I'm one of the two or three leading experts in the country on the meaning of the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment, as originally understood. Um, and uh, I have been applying that scholarship in a whole range of specific contexts. There's a group of citizens in France who were born while their parents were on temporary visas in the United States who are seeking to avoid the IRS long arm that tries to tax them of American citizens. Um, Boris Johnson, the former prime minister of Great Britain dealt with the same issue when he sold his house and the IRS went after him for capital gains because he had been born when his dad was here on a temporary work visa. So this, this scholarly work has nothing to do with race but when I apply the same principles and the same scholarship to Kamala Harris whose parents were on temporary visas her dad was on a student visa. Her mother had actually overstayed her student visa and was at the time illegally present in the United States, as far as I've been able to tell. Um, the, the issue is, according to the Supreme Court, if the parents were permanently and domi uh, domiciled here, then the children are automatic citizens. But the court has never taken the next step and applied that rule to temporary visitors, whether here legally on a student visa or here illegally. Um, and, and it's one of the big open questions in constitutional law that people have, have been debating. So I raised that question as applied in the context when it came up. Um, the people immediately said, because Kamala Harris is part, uh, part Indian and part Jamaican, that this was racist, uh, which is absurd. Uh, a, a, a gentle, but, the, but the standard for defamation in the United States, you have to prove not just a false statement, but that it was maliciously made. Not so in Great Britain. And so when a member of the, the London School of Economics fired off a defamatory note to me and copied the president of my university at Chapman, I pointed out to him that that was defamation per se, and he ought to retract it uh, pretty quickly. Now, I, I did make a tactical mistake. Britain, Britain has a rule that if you're sued for defamation, it's a full defense and will lead to a dismissal of the suit if you apologize, if you make what's called an offer of amends. I love their phrasing over there. Uh, instead of just bringing the suit and making him make that offer of amends in, in a public filing in the court, 
I gave him the opportunity to do it in email and he did it in immediate, you know, immediately uh, because he knew that it was defamatory, that the statement was false. Um, and in a, in a jurisdiction where I don't also have to prove malice, uh, he could be held liable for that false statement. Uh, so there's a pretty good indication of, of the defamation that now becomes part of the normal discourse, even in the academy. Uh, and I think it's most unfortunate because it means, but this was, this was a serious constitutional issue that remains open at the Supreme Court. And honest scholars have been acknowledging, even those that disagree with my interpretation of the clause, have been agreeing that it's an open question in the Supreme Court for decades. Um, but now, now it got tied up in the in the political frenzy, and and uh, and and that's no longer the case. We were we're no longer allowed to have an honest academic debate, well grounded in historical records, and uh, and try and seek the truth. So, to this writing on on Kamala Harris, then, and I'm sure I know your answer here. I'm not accusing you of anything, but I just want to get it on the record. Did you write this intentionally uh, in any way to? provoke anyone and whether racially or or just legislatively or, or otherwise or was it simply to beg the question of a potential other interpretation or somewhere in the middle yeah no no i i didn't i didn't uh uh instigate the writing of it at all i was contacted by a news outlet who uh, that was aware of my scholarship on this and said this now presents an as applied case of the scholarship you've been doing for 20 years do you want to do you want to write about it and and so I so I and I didn't I didn't definitively answer the questions. I said my the topic of the title of the article was some questions for Kamala Harris. <clears throat> I wanted to know had the time by the time she was born, had her parents become green card holders, lawful permanent residents, permanently domiciled in the United States, to use the language of the old Supreme Court uh, presidents in Wong Kim Ark, or were they here as temporary visitors? Temporary sojourners was the language used uh, during the debate over the 14th Amendment. And I didn't know the answer to that. I had some speculation about it. It looked like they were probably here on student visas, but, but if they had become green card holders, problem solved. Now, some people immediately falsely accused me of, of saying she wasn't born in the United States, trying to, con trying to equate this with the, with the birtherism claims during, uh, for President Obama. And that, that, that was completely false. I acknowledge in the article that she was born in Oakland. The issue was what was the status of her parents when she was born in Oakland. If I'm right about the meaning of the citizenship clause, that matters. Um, were they here lawfully, permanently and domiciled here, or were they just passing through on a temporary visa? And uh, if they were the latter, it's my view, and I think it's extremely well supported in the legislative record, in the early Supreme Court cases, and in the leading treatise writer of the day, and in early executive interpretations by the Department of State, um, then temporary sojourners, temporary visitors, people passing through and otherwise, don't get the benefit of that automatic citizenship if they have a child born on U.S. soil. It's a very important issue of public policy, and it's one that remains open in the Supreme Court. So I was happy when Newsweek invited me to write about this because it now gave me a, um, a very uh, as-applied way to look at the scholarship. Much like when I started this scholarship, I looked at it in the context of um, the, Guant the Guantanamo Bay prisoner who had been uh, part of the Taliban, uh, uh, Yasser Isam Hamdi. Uh, the United States started treating him as a citizen when they found out he'd been born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, while his dad was on a two-year work visa working on the oil rigs off of off Louisiana. 
And I said, no, that doesn't make him a citizen. And that, and Ed Meese, the former attorney general of the United States, uh, joined a brief uh, with me that we filed in the Supreme Court on that issue. Um, so it's a long-standing view, and it is one that remains open and needs to be resolved by the Supreme Court. The birth tourism industry doesn't exist if they get the, the understanding of citizenship. This is this is Russians uh, giving birth in Miami. <laughs> um, you know, talk about Russian influence, right? I thought we were all against that. Uh, or Chinese giving birth, uh, coming over a month before um, uh, the, the birth and giving birth to a child on, on US soil in order to create automatic citizens. I don't think that's what the clause means. And yet it's increasingly becoming a problem and will fester if we don't get a judicial resolution uh, of this issue. And so when I was presented with the opportunity to talk about it in a, uh, in a real life context, I, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, that people immediately jumped to the false conclusion that this was racist. I mean, anybody that looked at my work knows I've been doing this for 20 years and it had nothing to do with Kamala Harris. Um, but people, people don't tend to look honestly at this stuff uh, anymore. And that's, and it, you know, it's, it's like the legal scholars that jumped on the bandwagon against me were, had become Twitter trolls rather than scholars. And that I think was the most unfortunate aspect of the whole, of the whole thing. Well, this is an interesting situation because this is actually when I first heard of you, because again, I am a CU student, and this is the first set of emails on you we received was uh, back in August, it must have been, or September, um, talking about this article you wrote and how it's um, not something that we should endorse as a university or as individuals. So, of course, I had my biases against you, um, just, just seeing that. But nonetheless, I find it really interesting. So I really am glad you could tell your perspective well, on that. Well, and, and, and let me elaborate on that further. Here's again, one of the leading experts in the country on this. Uh, you would think this would provide an opportunity to prevent two sides of an important constitutional issue to the student body at CU. Um, and I offered when the chancellor sent out that note and when the dean of the law school sent out his note or whatever, I offered, I said, you know, or, or the, the, the head of the political science department, look, you've got me here, take advantage of this, let's, let's have an airing of what the issues are. Um, and so that people can, can reach a reasonable decision on their own about whether who, who's they think is the stronger argument. Nobody wanted to take me on on it, you know, partly because nobody has the depth of research into the particular question and the voluminous legislative history from 1868 that I do, and they didn't want to make a fool of themselves. But that that is rather telling uh, at an academic institution that people want to just silence the view that they think is probably the stronger, or at least going to be more strongly made, than rather rather than to engage on it. That's that's deeply troubling at a university. It seems to me. I wonder with this topic and and many others that I'm sure we'll get into. Do you think there is some kind of different standard, whether you support it or not, for people with a platform or pe people in the public eye? So, for example, ever since then, and maybe earlier, although I didn't uh, know too much of any controversy before that point, uh, you weren't as much in the public eye, but you are now and over the last six months. Do you think public figures, let's just say to, to lump you in this big group, deserve some kind of higher standard of Oh, I don't know, not to say credibility, because I know you're presenting evidence, um, but some kind of easier access to criticism. We're allowed to criticize, we're allowed to quote unquote, cancel you 
easier because of a platform you have that the average person wouldn't have. Well, that, that's the theory behind the Supreme Court's heightened standard for defamation suits for public figures. It's that the public figure does have a platform and rather than allowing for the defamation to go forward, allow that public figure to use the platform to counter the speech. It turns out modernly with the cancel culture that that's no longer true. I mean, I have, I have written rebuttals to a lot of the scurrilous things said about me and none of the local papers uh, have deigned to publish them, which means that the, and, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm barred from using any of the listservs on campus to distribute a rebuttal. So I don't have the platform to respond to these things. Um, so whatever merit the Supreme Court's heightened defamation standards for public figures used to be, it doesn't apply in the context of a cancel culture where people are not even allowed to have that platform. And that means, that means the lies and the defamations and the slanders stick out there unanswered. Um, and, and people's reputations can be destroyed without recourse. Uh, and so uh, I'm actually looking at whether that makes me not a public figure where I can take advantage of the lessened standards for defamation and start bringing some actions against people. Um, but, but, but more importantly, it seems to me, the idea of full throttled exchange protected by the First Amendment is designed so that through that crucible, we can get to the truth. Uh, and when you yet use that full throttled exchange to shut down one side of the discussion, it's no longer about getting to the truth. It's about being self-certain that you already have the truth. And uh, as an old professor once of mine said, if you're of that view, then um, education isn't going to do you any good because you're not open to it. So who do you think then is to blame in some sense for this outcome that you see as damaging? Because you could say the newspaper or, or something like that isn't willing to air your perspective, but from their perspective, they know they may be ostracized or deplatformed themselves in some way or another. So they are actually just saving face. So do you see any path forward? Do you think there's some overarching um, actual damaging core as to why this can't be done? Or do you think it really is the newspapers themselves and out, uh, platforms need to just, you know, take one for the team and show a well, new perspective? The newspapers have to have to develop some spine and courage. They have to, I was actually told by the Denver Post that they would publish my rebuttal if I would admit in the opening of it that, uh, that I had been wrong on all of this stuff. <laughs> I said, well, you know, uh, that, that, that kind of concedes the point without anybody proving otherwise. Um, uh, but I, I really lay the blame here at the chancellor of the university. I mean, he was the one that fired the first shot. Um, what should have happened with a senior scholar such as me on campus before he sent that out is to reach out and talk to me. And, and when, I, when, when I could explain to him, I've got the evidence, here it is, let's have a public forum about it. This thing would have taken an entirely different turn if he had had any courage. And the fact that he sent out the defamatory statement that he did as a public official um, and, and then uh, you know, oversaw the, the uh, the adverse job actions against me, adverse employment actions against me without any notice, without any opportunity to respond, without all of the normal things, an unbiased adjudicator, all the normal things our fundamental constitutional rights for due process require. 
um, then then they no longer are acting like um, uh, responsible public officials that they're supposed to be. And, and on steroids, uh, those public officials in a university context where we're our whole point here, by the way, the whole point of this, of this, this visitorship is to provide to the students on campus an alternate voice. Um, and, and, and the funny thing is on the, on the Kamala Harris article, in my, you know, the, the, the job application announcement says, we want somebody who's highly visible nationally in either the scholarship or policy of conservative thought and policy. Well, I think I qualified. My letter of application was focused on my birthright citizenship work and how I was nationally renowned on that, both scholarship and as applied. The job talk I gave last November was on that subject. So they all knew <laughs> that I'd had these views long before I applied the scholarship to Kamala Harris. And, when they, and then when they joined on the, on the Twitter troll frenzy that I, I must have made this all up out of whole cloth because I'm a racist, they knew that was false. And yet, and yet it, that should never happen in our society, but it certainly ought not to happen uh, at, a, at a university, at, at least a university that purports to not only be a, a, a credible, but to be truth seeking and to have a specific prohibition on discrimination on the basis of political viewpoint or political affiliation. Uh, and yet all of that was thrown out the window because I was on the wrong side of the cancel mob. Well, I do want to move on from universities, but I, before we do, what do you think your future looks like in university generally in education or as an instructor of some kind, whether conventional or otherwise, what does that path look like? Are there any new barriers in your way because of any controversy? What is that experience like? Well, well sure, sure. A lot, of, look, the US News and World Report rankings have a lot of people nervous about how others will vote for them on reputation scores if they hire somebody. Uh, but I will say this, I immediately had a, a, a number of offers at, at uh, fairly good universities uh, uh, to teach, to head a program, to become dean, whatever. So um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not lacking for opportunity. My, my focus right now, uh, I've been running a litigation center, public interest litigation center part-time uh, while I've been teaching for the last 20 years. And uh, so I, we just shifted over and I'm working on that full-time. And one of the things we're taking on is a broader, a broader representation of people that are being victimized by this new cancel culture. Because I think it's, I think it's uh, deadly for civic discourse and therefore the search for the truth in our country. Uh, and then I'm also um, still heavily involved in the various investigations on the election controversies. Because um, uh, whether, whether the election results were affected or not, uh, 50 to 70 million people in the country think they were. And unless we do an honest and full and comprehensive and transparent investigation of those things, we got a real problem going forward. Um, and uh, you know, we've the American people are supposed to be able to control the direction of their government by elections. And if we can't have faith in the elections, um, then then the American people are no longer consenting to their government. And that's a real problem when when the whole foundation of our government is based on the consent of the governed. So those are my two uh, big opportunities now. And quite frankly, the university's uh, canceling of my classes and other duties uh, freed me up a little bit to spend more time on those things. Well, let's step through then this 
timeline, the short timeline of the election, the next major event that I was aware of, whether through school emails or through just the news on my phone or whatever it may have been, uh, was your representation in this lawsuit from Texas and other states requesting the Supreme Court to block four states from finalizing their election results, Wisconsin, Georgia, and a couple others. What did that process look like uh, on a large scale? And then what was your role in that process? Yeah, so a part of that role I can't talk about because it's uh, attorney-client privileged communications. But I will say this, Texas filed their original action, and I was happy to see it. I had originally uh, expressed some skepticism about whether the court would allow them to have standing. It was Texas saying, look, Pennsylvania, your state officials are not following your election law, and that's created a fraudulent certification that has um, canceled out Texas's votes. Um, and there was Supreme Court precedent that said what happens in a national election in one state has an effect on citizen votes in other states that had suggested that there was would be standing for such a thing. And so I thought they made a fairly persuasive case based on that precedent that they did have standing. And, and I liked the dynamics of the case because it allowed the Supreme Court to take up the whole issue on whether violations of state law by non-legislative officials, which runs contrary to Article II's assignment of power to choose the manner of selecting electors to the legislatures, um, that they could take all four of those states at once and resolve that one issue. And they didn't have to decide what would happen as a result of that, but now kick it back to the state legislatures to determine whether the violations of their state law um, were significant enough to have affected the results of the election or not. And by the way, this was the same thing that the president and I asked Vice President Pence to do on January 6th, not to pick the winner, but to, but to delay things for a week so that the legislatures could finish their work on assessing the validity of their electoral votes under the existing law at the time in place on election day. Um, and, and this is a key constitutional issue. And I thought it warranted, anyway, so, uh, all right, Texas has under the Article Three of the Constitution, states have the ability when they're suing another state to get the matter immediately in the Supreme Court rather than going through the chain of command in the lower courts. No individual has the ability to do that. So the president couldn't bring that original action himself. But when Texas brought it, um, the president asked me to move to intervene in the case on, in his behalf as the candidate. And I think about it. If a member of the law faculty at the University of Colorado had been asked to represent President Obama uh, in a major Supreme Court legislation litigation, say on the, the Affordable Care Act litigation, I mean, th this school would be throwing a ticker tape parade of honors for somebody doing that. So there's this visceral hatred of Trump and anybody that then, I mean, I'm, I'm an attorney and I, I, a, a client retained me to represent him. And it happened to be a high profile client, but it happened to be a client that, you know, most of the faculty just have this visceral hatred for. And, and that cr created a dynamic that was 180 degrees opposite what, what would normally happen if a member of your faculty is asked to play such a high profile role in, in, a, in a national issue like that. So it, it, it really, the double standard here is just stunning. 
So to pin this down further for those who aren't as knowledgeable about you, or even those who are just laissez-faire in politics and vote for someone just of their party, let's say, which is common. I'm not yep. calling anyone out. Um, can you pin down exactly what was being sued for? I know you you briefly mentioned it, but could you unpack that further? Was it that there were people in the state who were changing how the ballot counting process worked? And then that is what is being uh, under contention? Yeah. So, no, they, 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 so, and, you know, why did the president, let me start with why the president asked me to do this, because it'll tap into your, your very first question. Who are you? What's your expertise and what have you? Um, I was, I was intimately involved in the litigation down in Florida 20 years ago. I was involved in the trial level. I was involved in the Supreme Court. And I was also the key expert called by the state legislature to protect their electoral votes. This goes back to this, um, this structural constitution that you know most people focus on rights or First Amendment or equal protection in the 14th Amendment. My key area of focus and my, my niche in litigation is the structural components of the federal constitution. One of those is Article 2. Um, uh, section, um, Article 2, Section 1, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, uh, twirling in my head. Um, the manner of choosing electors is vested exclusively in the legislatures of the state, right? And that means if a state executive official or a county election official or even the state judiciary alters the rules of the election, they are changing the manner of the election in violation of Article 2 because they don't have legislative approval. In some states um, where there were Democrat legislatures, um, they got a change through the legislature to allow all mail-in balloting, for example. But in other states like Pennsylvania, the legislature passed that but put all sorts of constraints on it. And then, and then uh, the League of Women Voters in Pennsylvania in August sued saying, okay, you require signature verification as a way to help protect against fraud in the absentee ballot process. Uh, but we think at the very least, you should give notice to the voter that you're not going to count their ballot and give them an opportunity to cure. That was the basis of the lawsuit brought in August. The Secretary of State on her own said, eh, I'm not going to enforce the signature verification requirement at all. Just, just dispensed with the legislative manner of choosing the electors. The state Supreme Court added to that, said, well, we don't, you know, there's another provision that said you have to fill in, sign, and date the outer envelope, and it has to be verified. And the court held, oh, we don't know what fill in means. It's it's ambiguous. I mean, it's just that's just it's nonsense. And then they got rid of all of the constraints. The requirements that the legislature put in place to ensure that the person actually casting that ballot was the person who's eligible to vote. Because if somebody not eligible to vote casts a fraudulent ballot, you're canceling out a legal vote. You're suppressing the legal vote. Anyway, so all of these changes went on in each of these states, in Georgia and Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Arizona, um, uh, the, the, these the, without constitutional authority of the legislature doing it. Um, and that opened the door for people to vote who were not eligible, people to cast fraudulent votes, falsely claiming to be somebody they were not. We don't know the extent of that because it's hard to prove after the fact once the ballot is separated from the outer envelope. Um, and that's why those constraints are put in on the front end and allow people to object if that 
if that handwriting just doesn't even remotely look like the, the voter registration card, it's pretty good indication somebody's fraudulently casting a ballot. They threw all that away and, and, uh, and unconstitutionally. So the issue was Supreme Court said, you don't have the legal authority to do that. That calls into question the validity of this election. And we want the legislatures to weigh in and let us know whether the scope, the magnitude of the illegality caused the results to come out opposite of what they actually were. And if so, we're gonna be counting electoral votes that were fraudulently certified. Uh, but, but the Supreme Court wasn't asked in that litigation to make that decision itself. It was asked to delay things, to say the, the state non-legislative officials had no legal authority to do this. What was the significance of that? Legislature, you now have to take back the power to decide how to choose the electors and let us know whether that election should be certified as is or not. And that's all that was asked. And it was a pure legal issue that I wish the Supreme Court had weighed, on, weighed in on back in October when it was given the first chance uh, and then weighed in on it again in December. And then last week, weighed in on it again, even after the election is over, we've still got this open issue going forward, which means the case is not moot. It's a well-recognized exception to mootness and they really needed to weigh in on it. But, but again, by five, by vote of six to three, they chose not to. I think that's very disappointing because it means this uncertainty and the chaos created by it will linger with us in future elections until we until we get a resolution of this. Thank you for for clarifying the specifics there. Uh, in your involvement over the last six months, although peaking a couple months ago, really in the public eye, has portrayed you, as far as I can tell, not as guy we disagree with top 100, but public enemy top 100 list, right? Um, that, that's an arbitrary guess, 100. It could be could be higher. I might be top 10. I don't know. We'll <laughs> sure, <see. laughs> maybe so. Uh, so how does that compare to two decades ago in Florida? Was the uh, response, obviously, it was a different scenario completely. But for any similarities you can find, do you think there's differences in societal response for those similarities? I, I, I do. Uh, look, uh, the visceral hatred of Trump is um, on a magnitude different. I mean, you know, after the 2000 election, there was a visceral reaction against Bush um, by the hard left, but not by the, the larger and maybe maybe the larger portion of the Democrat Party has become hard left. And so we all we've done, we haven't changed the visceral reaction. All we've done is increase the size of the pool that that hold it. Um, but I do think that visceral reaction against Trump made it made it uh, much more significant. Yeah, people were really upset on the left after a Bush versus Gore decision. They hated the Supreme Court. They hated Bush. That settled down a little bit after the attacks on 9/11, but only for a little while. Um, you know, then it then it then it kicked back into high gear. But it's been on steroids for the last four years, um, and I think that's partly because Trump was not an inside the beltway establishment player. The difference between the two parties in Washington, there are some stark differences on some issues, but by and large, they're all in favor of larger federal government, passing large spending bills, taking advantage of the pork and the transportation bill or the agriculture bill. Uh, Trump came in and started kicking over that apple cart. And that, that, um, that, that, uh, upset a lot of people on both sides of the establishment partisan aisle. Um, but it was tapping into a populist uprising in the country that didn't begin with Trump, 
that began back um, in reaction to the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, began back with the Tea Party movement that, um, that swept the elections in most parts of the country in 2010 and nearly deprived uh, President Obama of reelection in 2012. Um, and, and I think then contributed largely to the uh, election of Trump in 2016. This populist movement um, uh, uh, is, is an anti-excessively groaning, excessively sized federal government movement. Um, uh, Trump tapped into it as, as you know, America first. Uh, you know, let's quit sending foreign aid all over the world. Uh, that then was caricatured as, well, that's just, uh, you know, racist against other peoples in the world. No, it means we ought to quit sending money, our money, everywhere else in the world. It's tapping into this populist, take care of things at home first before you start being the policeman or the benefactor of the rest of the world. And he tapped into that in a way that had uh, the political consultant class and the political elite class and the political media class on both sides of the High, narrow partisan divide in Washington, very upset. Uh, and so you add that in, um, and then anybody that even stands with Trump uh, on any issue is demonized. And heaven sakes, to actually be the lawyer for him <laughs> to try and win on these issues. Uh, well, that's just intolerable. So that makes sense. And then part of me thinks back to the average person I would talk to on the street, friend, whatever. And I say, why don't you like Trump if there's someone who doesn't? Or why do you hate Trump? Whatever uh, their vernacular is about, about um, our former president. And oftentimes it's not about legislation. It's, it's not about anything behind the scenes. It really is about personality and demeanor. And uh, it's easy to laugh at that and say, oh, well, it's only about legislation. That's what matters. Uh, but at the same time, do you not find that there is any potential um, any common ground or ability to empathize with the idea that, oh, it's possible that a certain demeanor represents a nation in a certain way that may have negative consequences, for example. Well, yeah, look, I, uh, uh, I, I wish Trump, Trump had been more circumspect with his tweeting. Um, but it's also the case that um, his message getting out through the, the major avenues of media was completely being distorted. I'll give you, I, I think, the, the most famous example of this, uh, his statement about um, uh, there are some people on both sides, good people on both sides of that issue, the Charlottesville, Virginia uh, riots. Now, he had, he immediately said, and I'm not talking about the white supremacists in the Ku Klux Klan, they're all bad. What he was talking about is people, good people on both sides of the issue on whether we ought to respect our history or tear it down and try and whitewash it as if it never existed. The, 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 the triggering fight was the removal uh, of the statue of, a, of one, of the, one of the best in, in tactical skill generals the country had ever known, Robert E. Lee, um, and, and a, a, a chap who left the union only because of devotion to his state, not because of devotion to the state's institution of slavery. Um, and, and, you know, there were people historically said, we cannot just cancel out our history. We've got to take the good and the bad and learn from it. And when Trump said there are good people on both sides of that fight on whether that statue ought to be torn down or kept up, that's what he was talking about. And everybody knew it. But the media took it out of context, distorted it, and make it appear as if he had said there are good people over in the white supremacist crowd. 
which was not what he said. And he immediately condemned the white supremacist crowd. So then, th then people that don't actually take the time to look at the speech to see what he was actually said, but instead buy into the New York Times slanderous version of it, you know, uh, uh, it adds to their predisposition to think this guy's a white supremacist racist anyway, and I hate him for it. And I hate, therefore, everything that he does, even if it was something that the day before I was fully in support of. And that seems to me where we are. The partisan divide has gotten so distorted partly because of clickbait, but partly because, um, you know, the mainstream media is largely lopsided on one side of the political aisle, and they had a vested interest in mischaracterizing the statements in order to create a false narrative for political agenda reasons. That does touch on an interesting point about news generally right now, because earlier we discussed a little bit social media, a little bit about news, but really, it seems to me that I don't, have a good solution to uh, understanding this balance of a separation of media from government because we want that check on the government so it's it's more free market in some sense and social media platforms are, are businesses and they're allowed to do what they'd like but then also balancing that with the presumably truthful spread of information and presumably equal access to a public platform do you have any thoughts on how we strike this balance I, well, I, you know, it's a very difficult thing. You're right. Facebook and Twitter are, are private companies. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big opponent of the old fairness doctrine that says, you know, if you're going to put out one view, uh, you, you are obligated to put out the other because that infringes on the platform owner's own speech. But I think we've now crossed a line um, where those platforms are no longer private speech deciding what they want to convey and whatnot, but they have become the public square. And they have become the place where our political dialogue occurs. And, and for them, through algorithm or human intervention, to decide what side of the political dispute warrants repeating and what doesn't, I think is a very dangerous thing for our ability to engage as citizens and get to the truth of the matter. I mean, look, you know, um, there, are, there are things that Twitter and Facebook shut down that are well supported uh, you know, on, on election claims, that are well supported with evidence, with video evidence and what have you, and they just shut it down, claiming that this is purveying misinformation. Well, um, maybe it is, but, but the evidence seems to be there. Now, maybe the evidence can be rebutted, but how are we ever gonna know that if we're never allowed to look at it? Um, and, and by crossing that line to becoming the public forum, the public square, um, the, you know, the Supreme Court's got a pretty well-developed body of case law when something gets there. So the Democrat Party was a private, it's a private organization. Well, in the South, they would prohibit blacks from voting in their primaries. And, and in the South, whoever won the Democrat primary, this is before, um, you know, modern times, but for a long time, whoever won the Democrat primary would go on and win the general election. So by prohibiting blacks from voting in this private association's primary, you were depriving them of the ability to participate in the political process. And the court then recognized that private association, the Democrat Party, has become a, 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 an entity imbibed with public duty because it's now part of the public square. Uh, a company town uh, where they own the streets, they own the sidewalks, they own the grocery store, they own everything. Uh, they own the houses where the miners live uh, when they're not working. The court held when you've become 
the stand-in for the government. Uh, you can't say you can't speak on my public square because even though because it's privately owned property, it is the public square for that town and we're gonna treat them like that. And I think Twitter and Facebook have crossed that line. And that means um, they ought not to have the kind of censorship uh, power that they have to shut down political debate. So then let's pivot back to you then, because I want to touch on in more detail the biggest controversy surrounding you. It's arguably the most interesting just in the sense that there's the most political conversation around it. And that's January 6th. You know, you, you spoke at this at this rally. And the quotes that I saw most common uh, on online quoting you were, you know, we know there was fraud, dead people voted, um, just to name a couple. Uh, and this was, of course, at the Stop the Steel rally, in case there were any others that same day. So I, I want to know, um, can you unpack some more about what you said at that rally? Obviously, you touched on how you don't think that this is uh, an issue of inciting violence, but it still could be an interesting thing to unpack what it is you said, and if there were any potential negative implications, whether uh, legally or even just socially. Yeah, so, so uh, let's back up two days. I actually met with the president and the vice president for over an hour in the Oval Office, talking about various theories that had been floated, uh, not by me, but by others, including some uh, a student at Yale who published a law review article after the 2000 election under the tutelage of the two of Yale's most prominent constitutional professors, uh, Akhil Amar and Bruce Ackerman. Um, saying that under the 12th Amendment, the only authority to determine the validity of electoral votes when there's a question about it is vested in the vice president. And this was, this was a fairly reputable scholarly position that had been taken back in 2000 by, by a number of people. And of course, those articles were presented to the president, not by me, but by others. And uh, the president thought that that sounded good and wanted to have a conversation with me and the vice president about it. And the vice president turned to me and said, um, do you think I have that power? And I said, well, there are credible arguments to be made. They've never been accepted, but they've never been rejected either. Um, uh, uh, but, but I don't, even if you had that power, I think it would be foolish to exercise it when the legislatures of these contested states had not done anything to certify the alternate slate of electors. In other words, if they had done that, I think your hand would be greatly strengthened, but they hadn't. And why hadn't they? Because the governors of those states were refusing to call them into special session to be able to make that pronouncement. Um, and now they were coming back into formal session. And a number of them were sending letters to the vice president, merely asking that he delay the proceedings on January 6th enough so that they could take the look at this stuff that they'd been asking the governors to let them convene to look at for over a month. And uh, at the end of the day, he said, uh, there's a sub provision of the Electoral Count Act of 1887 that says, once the session starts, it can't be adjourned until our work is finished. And I said, yeah, but you've got pretty strong evidence from a lot of legislators that the electoral votes that you were sent that were certified were illegally certified. This goes back to the, the, the constitutional claims in the Texas case. And I said, so you're, you know, if that's true, you're going to then certify as elected a president who wasn't elected um, in, in order to comply with this subsection of an Electoral Count Act of 1887 that may be unconstitutional. 
I say, I think your, your obligation there is pretty clear. Give the legislatures the opportunity to look at this. And maybe they look at it. And in Pennsylvania, they say, yeah, we think there was fraud and the illegality opened the door for it. But it was only about 40,000 votes that were affected. And the margin is 80,000. Uh, we're, we're now notifying you that the original certification is valid. Maybe it comes out different in Georgia or Arizona where the margins were closer. Who knows? Um, but that's what he was asked. And if you look at my statement on January 6th, I make that very clear. And if you look at President Trump's statement an hour later on January 6th, he makes that very clear. The, the vice president was not asked to simply declare Trump reelected. That's a false narrative that was put out by anonymous sources that the New York Times carried. Now, the second piece I said on January 6th, I, I spoke for all of three minutes. And by the way, uh, the notion that I, I so riled up this crowd of a half a million people nearly two miles away from the Capitol to immediately, and remember the Supreme Court standard is imminent incitement, to immediately go down to the Capitol to launch into this effort, that I did this when they came from all over the country to hear not me, but the president who didn't speak for over an hour after I got off the stage. I, I mean, it's just, it's almost laughable. But then I said, look, we know for a fact that a number of non-legislative officials in these states altered their state election law. In Pennsylvania, they continued to alter the state election law even after the election had been held, um, be, you know, and what have you. We, I said, we know that. We know that there was traditional fraud. Now, I had three minutes, so I didn't say, you know, I didn't lay out all the evidence, but they're sworn affidavits by experts and, uh, and documented evidence in Georgia and Nevada and Arizona and Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania of traditional fraud of ballot stuffing, of, 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 of people who are not eligible to vote voting, of in Pennsylvania, of people being mailed already completed ballots. I mean, how does that happen by chance, right? Um, in Georgia, of a, of a University of Georgia student showing up to vote and saying she can't vote because uh, she's already voted by absentee and she had never in her life asked for an absentee ballot. So not only had somebody asked for it, and had it mailed to a different address than hers and then voted it, all right? Now that doesn't happen as a one-off. So these kind of tip of the, tip of the iceberg um, evidence of fraud was clear. Uh, the extent of it is what the issue is. And then based on uh, uh, a forensic audit of machines in Michigan and sworn testimony by the experts that were filed in the Georgia litigation, those experts, uh, discovered that the machines have the ability to hold ballots in a suspense folder. Um, and if that's true, it's possible that a, 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 a ne'er-do-well election official could pull those ballots in and add them to the mix, right? And these are the kind of things that ought to be investigated. Uh, and yet the, most of the litigation uh, that had been brought were shut down on various jurisdictional or procedural grounds without ever looking at the evidence. But I said, what the legislature are asking of the vice president and what I and the president asked the vice president to do is simply give the legislatures another week or 10 days, still in time to be able to have on time inauguration based on certified results but to give them an opportunity to look at some of these very serious allegations that had never seen the light of day in the courts for whatever reason. Um, and that was it, that was it. The crowd uh, you know, was then dancing to uh, Lee Greenwood and 
freezing in the cold, waiting for the president to come on stage. I was the last person that spoke before the president, but uh, there was about an hour delay before he came on. Um, uh, and, and while he was speaking, uh, crowds, and, it, and it's a mix. It's a, it's a, it's, uh, we now know, uh, as I suspected then, because we'd seen some of the, the, um, the Twitter traffic, we now know that uh, Antifa was directing its members to buy MAGA gear and pretend to be Trump supporters and wreak havoc as they could. We now know that there were some right-wing extremist militia groups like Oath Keepers and Proud Boys that had designed uh, to have a, a, an incursion on the Capitol. We know that after the fact, we didn't know it at the time. Uh, were some of the Trump supporters that were up at the White House part of that crowd? Well, Trump encouraged them, said, Patriot, you know, go down to the Capitol peacefully and patriotically and let your voices be heard. Now, that's an invocation of exercising your First Amendment rights and your right to petition the government for redress of grievances, joining in the request that the vice president delay these things so we can get to the bottom of the fraud allegations to find out whether they're real or phony. Uh, let your voices be heard. He did not ask them to go down and and cause a riot or, or or cause a I mean it was if it was sedition it was the most incompetent sedition ever ever envisioned in human history, um, but there were some bad actors who who punched through. We we know for a fact that this fellow uh, Solomon John Solomon no, no I forget what his name is I don't want to misstate John Solomon's a reporter for the Hill there's another name uh, is an Antifa guy. And he's one of the ones that broke some of the windows and was in encouraging people to come in and take back our house, right? And, and so, yes, yeah, so some of, the, some of the Trump supporters that were first on the scene did that. Most of the Trump supporters, and remember, this was a crowd of nearly a half a million people. Um, and we've got a couple of hundred that, that were part of the incursion into the Capitol. The rest of them were on, on, with a permit, as far as, as far as I've been told, you know, were peacefully protesting outside the Capitol to peacefully and patriotically let their voices be heard and exercise the First Amendment rights. Um, and uh, it's unfortunate that the, uh, the, 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 the ne'er-do-wells, the thugs, the troublemakers kind of allowed for a different narrative to be put on that. Because I do think, I do think the American people want some answers here. And this was a way to express uh, that desire to get some answers. Because I don't think I don't think any of this stuff, any of the hyperpartisanship, is going to settle down as long as a significant portion of the population thinks the election was stolen or um, that we can't trust the election officials. Look, we got in Wisconsin, we got election officials now. It just came out yesterday. Um, Democrat operatives being funded by uh, Zuckerberg and actually taking over control of the election uh, county election clerks management of the elections and given the keys to the uh, absentee ballots that were stored under lock and key. I mean, this is not supposed to happen. And while those things are going on and, and increasingly we're not allowed to talk about it, um, the American people are losing faith in their elections. And so I, I think it was absolutely right to say we need, what I said is we need answers to this stuff. And anybody in office that is not willing to stand up and help us get answers to this stuff doesn't deserve to be in office. And I think that's true. And I think you'll agree that there's a, a delineation to be made between challenging something that appears to be credible, um, whether you want to call that edge cases or not is up for debate. And I, I'm certainly not an expert on these on these topics. But do you think it's possible that 
there is a larger portion of the American public than we like to admit that is actually following some sort of uh, belief against this election, not because of a valid concern of legislation at the state level, but because of some kind of um, promoted potentially false pretense. Do you think that's a real possibility? Well, look, look, I mean, in order for that to be a possibility, we have to know whether it's false pretense or not. And I think that's what's contributing to people jumping on the bandwagon or refusing to get off the bandwagon, maybe a better way to appropriate is because every time we turn around, it looks like there are efforts being made to shut down the inquiry. So, so uh, you know, uh, in, in Arizona, Maricopa County uh, you know, fought tooth and nail against subpoenas that would get access in order to conduct an audit. Now, now I, I said way back in November or early December, if I were Vice President Biden and realized that there is such chaos and concern and challenges to the validity of the election, I'd be the first one out there calling for a full-scale and transparent investigation. Because if I won, I want the American people to know that I won so I can govern legitimately, right? But no, no, I mean, he and his team were doing everything they could to block the investigations. And that just heightens the concern that people have. Uh, and that's why, that's why um, my efforts now are to, I'm working with lots of teams from across the political spectrum to do serious and honest um, assessment of the various claims. Some of them are specious. They got out ahead of the evidence or they sounded good because somebody that didn't know what they were doing and looking at statistics. Um, uh, you know, and I'll give you one good example on this. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of traffic on the internet that talks about huge vote spikes for Joe Biden at three in the morning, right? 140,000 votes come in in Detroit and 138,000 of them are for Biden and only 2,000 are for Trump or whatever the numbers were. It looks astoundingly bad. It looks like blatant evidence of, of, of traditional ballot stuffing. Except one of the things that happened this election that hadn't happened in prior is a lot of the big cities because of the volume of mail-in ballots that they were expecting consolidated the counting of those ballots. Now, it still might be fraud. And one of the ways that we're gonna test that is whether Detroit or Atlanta or Philadelphia were not reporting any partial returns all through the evening when all the rest of the counties in the state are. And then all of a sudden when they're finished counting, they report them all. And if that's what happened, then that's perfectly explainable, right? But if instead they're reporting partial returns throughout the evening, like all the rest of the counties in the state are doing, and then we get such a vote spike, that's pretty strong indication that there was something nefarious that went on. How do we tell which of those two there is if we're not allowed to look? Well, time series data at the county level would help us answer that, answer that question, but the Secretary of State's offices have refused to make available the time series data at the county level rather than the statewide level. That just raises the suspicion further when it might be a perfectly plausible explanation if we could get to the bottom of it. That's, I think, what's going on and why it's so important that we actually have a full and transparent investigation of all of these claims by people that are honest and sincere and willing to say, no, that's just that that claim just isn't supported by the evidence. It's perfectly explainable on reasonable grounds, as I think I'm in a position to do. And so I hope uh, I hope when people see um, the report that I'm working on with the committee come out that they'll realize this guy's actually fairly serious about these things. Distinguishing the wheat from the chaff, 
the sh on the on on the type of claims and then looking at the claims that are valid to determine there's there's election fraud that goes on in every election usually it's fairly minimal and doesn't impact the results the question is this one seems to have gone on at such a much broader scale that we suspect that it may have affected the results but it would be extremely important to find out an answer to that for certain to the extent anything along these lines is certain well, let me ask you one last question, uh, because it's it's an important one that I, I like to hear people's thoughts on. Um, what is the biggest misconception about you that's being portrayed publicly today? Yeah. Well, uh, boy, there's so many. It's hard to hard to know. Um, one that my my uh, application of the scholarship on birthright citizenship was racist. Uh, that's just false. It's well grounded in constitutional law. Um, that that uh, I didn't have any evidence for the things I've said. Anybody that knows me, or or worse, and this is look, and I'll, I'll put it this: this is a good way to conclude. The things I said on January 6th, or have been saying in the court pleadings, um, you got to look at them in in one of three or four ways. I could be right that there was illegality and fraud, and that it was big enough to affect the outcome of the election. And we ought to know that as the American people, because it goes right to the heart of consent of the governed. I could be right about the illegality and fraud, but it was not big enough to affect the results of the election. We ought to know that too, because that will help us shine a light on it and prevent that kind of chaos and challenges in going forward. I could be wrong. I might have been misled. I might have looked at circumstantial evidence for which there's a reasonable explanation and, and treated it as fraud. But how do we get to figure that out is by vetting it and exploring it and challenging it. And then if it is wrong, I'm the first to admit it. Or we could look at it as I knew what I was saying was wrong, that there was no basis in fact, but I wanted to cause an insurrection and topple the government and violate the law that I've spent my whole life trying to defend. Now, anybody that knows me knows how utterly implausible that is. And yet the chancellor of the university, the chairman of the, of the law, the dean of the law school, and the director of the Benson Center all immediately jumped to that most implausible explanation um, without even talking to me or giving me an opportunity to respond. I find that rather despicable. And, it, and it's designed to shut down not just my speech, but the speech of anybody that would raise legitimate and serious questions about the validity of our election or about, in fact, any disputed public issue. Um, and that it seems to me, uh, uh, if I can stand up against this stuff, the scurrilous stuff, uh, scurrilous as it is, that I'm, I'm doing a good public duty, tr trying to let other people know that they can have the courage and do this as well and act like citizens uh, uh, with some fortitude to protect the institutions of our government. Well, Dr. Eastman, thank you for sitting down with me. I'm not the legal scholar you are, so I couldn't agree or challenge your points in any way. Uh, but I really do appreciate the conversation because I, I find value, as I've said, in, in reaching either middle ground or more importantly, truth, regardless of where it lies on the political spectrum, because that's what's important. And dialogue is the best way to do that. And I, I wanted to hear your perspective in much more detail. So I really thank you for sitting down with me. Well, and thank you, Colin, for reaching out to me and uh, pulling this together. I think it's important. And I hope a lot of the student body at CU are able to hear it.